Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information, it's strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, aka Scotty's Angel. Good morning, Scotty. I was waiting for some sort of a good morning uh, joke there. Uh, uh, I-, I was thinking you're more of the Bosley of this one, really. Fair enough. Yeah, I'll take the bumbling Bosley. fool. Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who has scenes basically just by himself, locked in a room. That's me. Yeah, yeah, I can see you whittling away and making a little gun for yourself. Yeah, yeah, reenacting scenes from The Great Escape. Yep. Mm-hmm. Talking to birds. Mm, classic. That's mm. one of my favorite pastimes is to find nut hatches and have conversations on my windowsill. It's just, it's just a bizarre thing that that podcast didn't take off, mate. I know, right? Well, you know, maybe my next bird venture will take off, take flight. <laughs> oh, wait, I had another bird venture. It was called Condor Man. Oh, God. Don't take me back to that. I still want to hear about this comic book you found. Yeah, that's right. I have purchased the Condor Man sequel comic. I paid like $25 for it. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. So when when it's like, oh, I have to spend $5 to rent a film, you're like, ugh, do I have to? Condor Man prequel comic, 25 bucks. Let's go, baby. Uh, it's a collector's item, Scott. Ah, uh, I see, I see, I see. Well, mm. uh, far be it from me to question the... Uh, the, the, the wisdom of the genius that is Cam. That's true. Plus $25 Canadian is about $1.15 US. So there you have it. It's about 20p in the UK. Mm, okay. Mm. Well, I, I think we've kind of spoiled it, but uh, what are we doing this week, Cam? We are going back to the year 2000 when wire foo was all the rage. And we're going to talk about Charlie's Angels. Oh, my ladies. Can you feel me? throw your hands up at me mm-hmm no kidding mm-hmm. well for those that aren't in the know this is the letterbox.com synopsis for charlie's angels get some action three women detectives with a mysterious boss retrieve stolen voice id software using martial arts tech skill and sex appeal <laughs> guitar solo <laughs> Yeah, maybe a bit of corn or something in the background. Mm, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, that's pretty perfect. So, I mean, I feel like you have a really uh, strong advantage when you are writing a synopsis for a movie based on a TV show where the pitch of the show, you just kind of translate that over. Eh, pretty much sums up the movie too. Uh, maybe sums up the movie. I think there are some differences, but we'll maybe touch on that later down the line. Yeah, because we're going to do with this episode what we did with our Man From U.N.C.L.E. episode back in the day, in that we're going to talk about the movie, but we're also later in the show going to talk about the pilot episode of the show that spawned it. So we will talk about the very first episode, the hour and 15 minute pilot for Charlie's Angels from 1976. You'll know, listeners, I watched the film twice. So I've had to watch this film twice and the pilot twice. You watched the pilot twice? Yes, sir. Holy smokes. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. What what are you saying, Cam? Didn't you love it? (laughs) I watched it once. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. (laughs) And then broke your TV. (laughs) That's right. Okay. Well, before I, I, I know there's going to be a bit of a genesis of this film. Obviously it was a TV show, Hmm. but did you have any experience of this film back in 2000? 
Uh, yeah, okay, so I remember when it was coming out, the marketing was everywhere that Destiny's Child song, Independent Woman, was everywhere. You could not avoid it no matter how much you tried. You could curl up in a bunker underground, and it would still be piping in through the PA system. Um, so I was very much aware the movie was coming out. Uh, I didn't see it in theaters. I just, I, I remember having just not a lot of interest in seeing it whatsoever, uh, and I don't think my friends did either, which makes all the difference when you're 19 years old. If all your friends are like, nah, you're like, okay, well, yeah, I don't care either. So I did watch it as soon as it hit video. And I, I remember thinking like, eh, that was kind of fun. Like it, it wasn't, a, I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was just kind of like, you know, goofy and silly. And I, to be completely honest, have not thought about this movie or hadn't thought about this movie since seeing it back in, I guess, probably 2001 to this very day. Like, it wasn't until last night rewatching the movie that I was like, wow, you, I never would have thought that I would be rewatching this movie like 20 something years later. It's funny you should talk about uh, revisiting it and, and, and your experience too, because I also didn't see it in the cinema, but I was the age of 13 at the time. So I'm not too sure what the rating was in the UK. But I. I think it was one of those VHSs that my house just had. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I just think it just got played a lot in, in my house because I, I didn't remember anything about it coming into it, apart from that fight in the alleyway with the creepy thin man played by Chris Glover. I remembered a lot of moments from it. Like, there was a lot of um, just, like, shots or little, like, comedic situations that had really kind of stuck in my head. So... It's interesting in that, uh, you know, I, I did see the sequels or, you know, the, the second and the third um, Charlie's Angels films. And I, I don't really have memories of those. Whereas like this one, a lot of it did kind of just lodge itself into my brain. And I, I look forward to examining why exactly that was. <laughs> oh, I think I know. Well, it, it's a weird movie. And I, I think I'm really looking forward to talking about this one because of you know we've talked about a lot of different movies but this one really does feel like a cultural artifact from the year 2000 and i found it very interesting in that regard yeah it I, i'm not going to talk about my feelings on, on it now but i think it was definitely just part of the rotation i had at the time of vhs's in my house and so i've just absorbed it mm -hmm. and um yeah I, again i just remember beats and jokes and scenes so when I was rewatching it, I was just amazed at how much it just all just clicked back in my head. Yeah. But um, as we sort of alluded to earlier, this film, as if you didn't know, used to be a TV show. So how did it go from small screen to big screen? Well, that's quite a journey. But um, basically, back in the day, I don't know if you remember, in the 1990s, they were obsessed with turning TV shows into movies. I mean, I guess they would still do that now. But nonetheless, this was like the big craze where you had like the Brady Bunch, you had the Flintstones, the Fugitive. Do you remember this era, Scott? I think I, I remember things like the Flintstones and this. The Brady Bunch was never really a thing in the UK. Um, and I didn't even know the Fugitive was a TV show. Yeah, it was actually a really popular show in the 60s, I think. Uh, Might have been in the late 50s. I'm not, I'd have to look that one up. But um yeah, they made like movies, even off stuff like Car 54, Where Are You, The Beverly Hillbillies. There was like all these, um, all the uh, McHale's Navy, all these movies were being cranked out based on TV shows. And this one feels 
towards the end of the trend. That train uh, that trend kicks off in like around ninety three ish or so, and then carries into the later nineties. But nonetheless, Charlie's Angels was on Sony Pictures' to-do list. They very much saw potential in rebooting this TV show, which had run from 76 to 81, for the big screen. Now, Drew Barrymore was a big fan of the show growing up. Her and her producing partner, Nancy Javonen, um, went to Sony to try to convince them to hand the reins over. Now, Drew Barrymore's production company is called Flower Films. They produced actually a lot of films, um, including Whip It, the... Um, the um, roller derby film from a handful of years ago. A lot of her TV work is done through Flower Films. But she saw this movie as a really interesting chance to do a female-driven action franchise. So she went to Sony and she pitched it with a sizzle reel she'd put together, cutting together clips from countless films, including Enter the Dragon, Used Cars, Foul Play, The Great Escape, uh, tons of movies, essentially presenting a tone piece of the kind of vibe she wanted to achieve. And Sony was like, okay, I guess. And they handed over the reins of the franchise to her. So Drew Barrymore and her producing partner oversaw dozens of writers, dozens of scripts. Like there was a lot of work being put into trying to develop a story based on this show. It's always interesting when I hear things like that, because I always thought the central concept of the show was quite simple. (laughs) Would you have thought the same, Scott? See, I can understand if she was quite precious about the like the the conversion from TV to movie, but yeah, as a as a TV show, it's it's pretty darn easy to watch and basic in terms of plot. I just wonder if maybe there was also we'd seen a lot of TV to film adaptations fail, and so I wonder if it was very much how do we make this cinematic? How do we make this big in an event? So I can kind of understand some of the anxieties there. Plus. Um, there's not a lot of female-driven action franchises at this point. Really, there's none. You can look at female action heroes like Ripley, um, Linda Hamilton in the Terminator films, or going back, Pam Greer in like the black exploitation films, but not a lot of blockbuster franchises. And I think that's why this movie is actually somewhat interesting. But I can understand there may have been a little more um, pressure on Barrymore and her team to make this movie something that really worked. Well, a quick question before you move on. Uh, obviously, I can understand if Sony were quite precious about having this because if this is the era of converting TV shows, because it's a, you know, you can people know it, people will invest in the brand that is Charlie's Angels. Who is Drew Barrymore to come in and say, "Give it to me"? Is, is her star quite high at this point? I don't know where she really is in her career. Yeah, right. That's actually a really good point. So yes, Drew Barrymore has had a real resurgence. So she's done movies like Never Been Kissed, um, The Wedding Singer. She's definitely has a pretty high profile at this point. And uh, she was a very big draw for youth audiences. And I would have to imagine that's incredibly appealing to Sony that she could draw in that, you know, teenage and 20 something crowd. And I think not to, you know, foreshadow things, but I I think that was maybe the target audience. I would have to think so judging from the movie, but yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) the um, script that was put together the, <laughs> I would say, temporary script was by Ryan Rowe, who had done the cult film Tapeheads with John Cusack, as well as some uh, Disney TV adaptations of The Love Bug and Computer War Tennis Shoes. It was also written by Ed Solomon, who had done Men in Black and the Bill and Ted franchise. So this script was pretty much unused, but it was enough, I guess, to get the go-ahead, um, if that makes sense. 
Oh, so this wasn't the script that was shot. This is just what oh, no. they led in with. This was the credited script, um, but no. So what happened was at this point they start uh, looking at casting. Drew Barrymore brought in Cameron Diaz, who had turned it down a few times, but Barrymore personally uh, got Cameron Diaz to sign on. Um, then they were looking to cast the Alex role, and they really wanted Angelina Jolie. And Jolie was not interested at all. She ended up doing Tomb Raider, I think the same year, or maybe the following year. Uh, they also talked to Catherine Zeta-Jones, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Tandy Newton, Ashley Judd, Angie Harmon. Ultimately, they went with Lucy Liu, who at this point was actually quite popular on the show Ally McBeal. Um, but uh, Lucy Liu was not, I guess, a proven quantity at the box office. So, and I think that was very much reflected. If you look up the pay disparity between the, uh, you know, Drew Barrymore and Cameron Diaz versus Lucy Liu, it's quite evident. Well, it might be worth just telling everyone what that was, because one of my only bits of research was the the pay disparity, and it's quite big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what was it, Scott? Well, I haven't got... Uh... Cameron Diaz and Drew Barrymore's uh, to the number, but I know Cameron Diaz had the most, and then Drew Barrymore had a little bit less, but she also had a producer credit, so she got paid a bit more on top from like the gross of the film. Yeah, but we're talking like tens of millions. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, Lucy Liu, one million dollars. Yeah, I mean Cameron Diaz was, you know, a lot of actors at this point. Uh, if you were a top draw, you're a male top draw, I should say, you're getting about 20 million, which is like the Schwarzenegger, Jim Carrey money. And then the female top rate, I think was like Julia Roberts and um, Demi Moore were getting like 12.5. Um, it's very telling, of course, that, uh, you know, a decade plus later, uh, Patricia Arquette calls out the pay disparity when she wins the Oscar. And people are like, what? It's like, uh, yes, it was very clear back even in the uh, 1990s and early 2000s that there was a very significant pay difference between um, top selling stars of the day between male and female. But uh, yeah, Cameron Diaz got the 12.5 because this really was a big era for her. It's interesting to to think that this is kind of Lucy Liu's big moment. Yeah, I I wouldn't I didn't watch Ally McBeal. I didn't really think it was a show that was for me when I was 13 Mm -hmm. Um, and British. But yeah, I guess this was my first experience with Lucy Liu. Probably was for me too. Well, actually, she did appear in one episode of the X-Files back in the day, so I would have seen her in that, I guess. Uh, yeah, I probably would have done the same. But I, yeah, definitely the, the first appearance on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was very much like a star moment for her. Yeah, totally. And then she does, you know, Kill Bill a couple of years later and Charlie's Angel sequel. So she definitely did some stuff of note, uh, but this was probably the big coming out party on the big screen, yeah. Whoa, whoa, hold it, hold it, hold it. Mm. She did star in Shanghai Noon this very year as Princess Pepe. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, To be fair, this is still the big movie star moment because that role, I mean, it's fine, but it's also comes very much behind the Owen Wilson, Jackie Chan pairing. Yeah, absolutely. It's not it's not top billing, whereas this is, which is why the disparity is, is, is so strange because... It's not like she plays second fiddle to Diaz and, and Barrymore. It's just that era, though, where they also looked at TV actors as somewhat lesser. So if you were like a star on, as you know, Ally McBeal was a big deal, you were still not worth as much as a proven movie star like a Drew Barrymore or a Cameron Diaz. Sure. I can understand that. And things have changed over time. Um, we don't tend to give out the huge um, dollar amounts that uh, they did in this era. 
And so unless you have like a real back end deal, like a Robert Downey Jr. on the Avengers films or something like that. So I think the disparity between TV and film has shrunk for sure. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so they approached a few directors to do this. Frank Karachi, who had worked with uh, Drew Barrymore on The Wedding Singer, turned it down. Alexander Payne, who did Election, turned it down. And Boz Luhrmann, who did Moulin Rouge, turned it down as well. Ultimately, it was McGee, a music video director, who won Barrymore over. Uh, he's most known for having, I mean, a major role in shaping music videos in the 1990s. It's pretty crazy when you look down his credits, but he first got into the industry doing corn videos. So he did almost all the videos off their first album, the self-titled corn album in 1994. Uh, he also did the got the life video from follow the leader. Some of the other ones he did offsprings, pretty fly for a white guy, smash mouth, all-star and bare naked ladies one week, just to give a credit to uh, my Canadian pride and joy. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a bit of a jump going from corn uh, to uh, the offspring, I guess, but they're all kind of new metal. Um, did he do the Freak on a Leash one? Oh, that's animated, isn't it? Oh, no, there is there is live action in that too, isn't there? Uh, no, he didn't do Freak on a Leash. That was Todd McFarlane. So he, this is his first film then? Yeah, it, it is. And his full name is Joseph McGinty Nickel. For those confused, McGee is what he goes under professionally. But yeah, he won Drew Barrymore over with his, I guess, visual concepts for the movie. And I mean, Drew Barrymore, I'm looking forward to talking because this is a movie very much run by Barrymore through her producing power. Um, and I think there is an interesting, um, <laughs> we could say clashing of concepts between I think what Barrymore is doing versus what McGee often seems to be doing. So that's going to be interesting to talk about. But um, at this point, even after hiring McGee, they still don't really have a script for this movie whatsoever. So they hired John August, who had done Doug Lyman's Go. He did Titan AE. And he would go on to do a lot of Tim Burton movies like Big Fish, Corpse Bride, Dark Shadows, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He came in last minute to try to put something together. They began production on this movie with just a concept and an opening. Like, that's all they had, <laughs> which is crazy. Whoa. So they started shooting things before they even knew the first scene the angels were going to be in. Yes. Right. Hollywood is bizarre, man. It truly is. And I saw an interview with McGee from the era. And he said, basically, they did most of the movie without a script. He would get together with the three actresses and hammer out what they were going to do. Uh, this was very much shot on the fly. One thing I thought was interesting was they talked about how, despite all the plotting being very much up in the air, all of the actresses had a very firm lock on what their characters were and what the tone of the movie was. So I think it's going to be interesting to talk about the tone of the movie and the characters because I think they're pretty consistent and it seems like they knew what movie they were making, even if they didn't know what that story was. That's why you surprised me when you said it was quite free-flowing because mm -hmm. I didn't really get that impression from the film. Yeah, so we'll talk about that in a bit. A um, couple other notes I'll mention. Uh, the, uh, the three leads trained a lot for this movie. They trained eight hours a day for five days a week for three months in Kung Fu. Uh, and I think uh, the evidence is fairly strong on screen that they did a lot of work. This is also that post-Matrix era where uh, martial arts and films is like really getting exciting and they're training actors a lot to do this stuff. They hired Yuan Chun Yan, who is the brother of Yuan Wu Ping, who did the choreography on The Matrix. So he, he did 
um, the fight choreography on this film. And he's a longtime martial artist, actor for decades, does stunts. He worked on the Matrix sequels. So like you have some real pedigree in the action choreography. You've got the three leads doing a lot of Kung Fu training. They definitely wanted an authenticity to the martial arts and action on screen. Yeah, I, I I had a question about the Matrix, and I I don't remember dates in in my head. So you're telling me the Matrix came out before this? Yeah, nineteen ninety nine. Right. So the whole like Waifu season had begun, basically. Yeah, I mean it had existed in you know uh, you know Asian films for quite a long time, but it very much crossed over to the U.S. You know around the time of the Matrix. Okay, I I can definitely see the influences then. That that was something I picked up on my on my watching. I just wasn't sure on the timeline. Yeah, because remember, uh, the first X Men movie comes out this same year, and it has a lot of wire foo action as well. Yeah, that bit where Wolverine does that sort of hover jump kick in the air was 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 quite an interesting <laughs> thing to see. There's some really clunky wire foo in that one. Uh, I have kinder things to say about the wire foo in this movie. <laughs> the the X Men stuff is really aged poorly. I honestly don't remember that film at all, apart from a really odd scene of like the bad guy melting down the side of a building. Mm, mm, right. And and something to do with the Statue of Liberty. That's where the uh, awkwardness really comes into play is that Statue of Liberty fight. I will be Googling that directly after this recording. Yeah. So they wanted the original angels to do cameos in this movie. Ultimately, they all turned it down, minus John Forsyth, who came back to reprise the role of the voice of Charlie. Apparently, Farrah Fawcett wanted to be with Charlie in the film, um, and that wasn't really working with what they wanted to do. And Kate Jackson wanted to play the Kelly Lynch villain role, so that didn't work out either. Um, Kind of a bummer. I always think it's kind of fun when they work in these cameos organically, but I guess this wasn't to be. Um, Now, this movie did, on top of the script issues, there was some other drama going on, and it seems to swirl around co-star Bill Murray. Now, Bill Murray... Pretty exciting to have him on a movie like this. He's a presence that's very reliable, but it doesn't sound like he had a good time doing this one at all. Him and McGee did not get along whatsoever. There was rumors at the time that Bill Murray had headbutted him. Um, it seems like that was not the case, but Bill Murray has since said that uh, McGee deserves to perish and should be pierced with a lance, not headbutted. I'm glad he clarified that point. Um, I don't think he really got his intended message across with the headbutt. Yeah, uh, Bill Murray is known to be pretty prickly, and um, it seems like this set was not his friend. He also had some sort of blow up with Lucy Liu during the shooting. Um, it apparently caused a shutdown for one day. I don't really know what happened. The details on that seem to be scarce. Bill Murray has said he was ridiculing some of the dialogue she had to say, as in like one actor to another, and it was not taken that way. And it seems like that was something to do with it. It was uh, definitely... Um, tense though and bill murray it should be noted is not back in this in the next film see there's two problems here and yet they both have the same person involved so i'm tending to think it might well be him that's the cause it seems like this was not his set this was not his vibe and um we'll talk about bill murray's contributions to the film but i don't think this was a set playing to his strengths it's just it's just bizarre to wish death upon someone well, Bill Murray's a very strange man. <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting for him to turn up and just join this podcast randomly. That would be actually pretty fun. So maybe uh, when we do The Man Who Knew Too Little, we can get him on the show. <laughs> give, give us a call, Bill. I don't think he wants to talk about this movie. <laughs> 
No, he's coming back on for the second one. Yeah. <laughs> That's a twist for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that no one wanted. But um, do, you, do you have anything else for us, Cam? What about the, the box office? Yeah, so the budget for this movie was $93 million. Domestic, it made $125 million. International, $139 for a worldwide total of $264 million. This was a big hit. Um, it landed at number 12 for the year between Scary Movie and Aaron Brockovich. Number one was Mission Impossible 2. Number two was Gladiator. And number three was Castaway. That's a hell of a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a hell of a year. Um, uh, hey, at least it made its money. And obviously it, it paid for the sequel. Yeah, I mean, this was a big hit. And, uh, you know, there was obviously a lot of marketing. And I think a lot of it was mm. done through... I mean, here in Canada, we have much music, which is... The same thing as MTV. Uh, nowadays, it doesn't really play music videos anymore. I don't even know if it exists anymore. Actually, I'm old. What do I know? But um, back in the same day... Same as MTV. Yeah, same as MTV. Back in the day, though, like you could not escape that Destiny's Child song. The marketing was everywhere. This was very much a movie that a lot of young people had to go see. Like This was a big opening weekend. People had to see this movie. Which is why you didn't turn up. Yeah, I, I just have to imagine. I have really no memory as to why we didn't go uh, because you know i was 19 we went to tons of movies i think it was just like friends didn't want to go plus i have to feel like we were playing golden eye all the time to be honest hey there is that i think i i know why i didn't go see it in cinema i think that was the age issue with my family but definitely by the time it was released on home video it just felt like it was such a of the moment film especially with that charlie's angels song that that destiny's child song was on the radio all the damn time mm-hmm and still is. It is, yeah, for sure. And I was also like just really big into like heavy metal music, of course, at that time. And I just feel like a lot of the marketing wouldn't have appealed to my so metal sensibilities. Well, I think, uh, and we will get into this. <laughs> I think we were probably the target audience, though. I guess I, I don't know. And I, I'm, yeah, let's get into that. So that kind of wraps up the behind the scenes on this movie. Okay. Well, Cam. I think this one is going to be long, hard, and rough. <laughs> but I want you to really stick your opinion in my slot. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and that was just some of the one-liners this film has. <laughs> I no longer want to be one of Scotty's angels. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to send you a voice memo in the morning, like, good morning, Cam. <laughs> I was like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Throws your phone out the window. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, no, you go first, buddy. You you did you did catch this at around the time, but what do you think now? So I sat down to watch this last night, and I'm not gonna lie, there was a certain you know amount of dread with this one because I just thought, okay, this movie didn't exactly grab me that much when I saw it in 2000. What is it going to be like revisiting a 2000 year blockbuster? You know, the age of wirefu, bad CG, um, yeah. Like, is this going to be grating for me to watch? I didn't find that to be the experience. I actually, you know, you and I talked about Remo Williams fairly recently. And that's a movie where we went back and forth. Like, what is this movie trying to do? This movie's tone is all over the place. Here, I actually kind of admired how close they stuck to their tone. They knew what movie they were making. All three leads are on the same page. It's very poppy. Um, I remember Roger Ebert hated this movie and called it something like um, eye candy for the blind. 
but it is like pure sugar. It is just like a bubblegum movie that it's entirely disposable, but it's so committed to just being over the top, silly, ridiculous. And it moves at a very quick pace, which I really want to emphasize was my favorite thing. This movie is 98 minutes. It speeds through. I think it could have maybe cut a couple minutes in the back half or something. It gets a little bit, uh, I got a little bit worn out by the end a little, uh, I will say. But ultimately, I found it, It's look, it's not a movie that's really that much for me. It's not the sort of thing I don't think I'll be revisiting in the future. But I kind of appreciated it as a artifact of the year 2000. Um, an example of what happened when you had a very strong female producer working with a male director of music videos, which is a clash that I think comes across in the movie that's going to be interesting to talk about. But overall, I thought this movie was more interesting to watch than I expected. I, I think I resonate that almost perfectly. Uh, one thing to sort of give us give the listeners a little bit of the behind the scenes is as part of my watching, I, I tend to watch these films before Cam does. And I was really concerned about uh, just the tone and sort of the sexualization of this film. Mm. And, and you can attest to my worries about that and, and maybe thinking maybe we should have another voice on this. And I just think ultimately it's, it's, it's a punchy little film that knows what it is. It is all veneer. There is, there is nothing beneath the surface. But I think it understands and acknowledges it that enough that you just kind of go with it. And everyone is, as you said, playing their part. Well, it feels like pure comic book filmmaking in the era I'm talking about where comic book filmmaking meant just really like hyperactive, action-packed, colorful, goofy. Um, you know, I'm not talking the Marvel era where they're much more grounded in character. It's much more of that we are just making pop entertainment. And I think so much of this movie depends on whether it's aesthetic is interesting or funny to you or fun to, you know, engross yourself in this world. Um, for me, I kind of am a little bit removed from it. I don't have the, um, it, it's not something that draws me in that much. It's not something that I find particularly compelling to watch, but I can totally admit that this is something that works on its own terms. And I can completely understand why it does have, um, Despite the fact it's a big hit, I think a lot of people actually hate this movie. Um, you see a lot of negative opinions on this movie if you go online. It does not have a high IMDb score, for example, or you know, you look at general you know user reviews of this movie. Not great, but you do see it has a cult audience that very much appreciates what it was trying to do. I think that's probably it. Is you have to look at it as as a film that knows it is just schlock. Yeah. And, and and campy and quiche but in the right way like it it is exactly nailing itself and it understands what it wants to be and delivers i don't i don't watch charlie's angels and expect it to be a john le Carre adaptation wait it isn't i'm afraid not no the, the pilot was though of course yes of course very plodding and slow uh, i mean lovely and great watch i enjoyed it so much yeah. um but it, I, when we started this podcast, one thing I said was I'm a lot more of a popcorn cinema viewer. You know, I, I like my big action set pieces and schlock and messiness and that fun feeling of going to the cinema. We don't have to think too much about the films. Mm -hmm. 
This is the perfect example. Yeah. This is it. This is popcorn cinema. Oh, it is pure popcorn cinema. Yeah, like it, it's just aimed to entertain. And it's it's specific in its choices. And I think that specificity is what makes fans of the movie really love it and what makes people who aren't vibing with it really annoyed. I, I imagine there's a lot of demographics that might not like this film. But I, I think as a general opinion, you've got to count me as one of the ones that does. Oh, that's that's awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, going back to my my thoughts about it as a kid, I think a lot of this film is targeted at that sort of teenage boy. You know, as I mentioned, the sexualization of it, um, you know, kung fu, heavy metal, take out food, and girls in scantily clad outfits. Yeah, I mean, I was actually pretty shocked when the movie started with a cue from uh, the corn song Blind. I was like, really? They were kicking this movie off with corn music? That's bizarre. Yeah, I, I, as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, wow, this is like, it reminded me of, uh, I watched Triple X recently. Oh, yeah. And that film starts out with, again, a new metal soundtrack. And I thought, oh, wow, they're really, it's really of its time. It sort of dated itself straight away. But it somehow works because then you're mixing in like, Heaven must be missing an angel in two scenes on. It's just winking at the camera the whole time. There are a lot of songs with the word angel in them in this movie. <laughs> including two songs made for this film, one by Destiny's Child and one by Aerosmith, I think. Yeah, okay. Did the Aerosmith one was actually made for this movie? I think so. I hadn't heard it before until I heard this. And I do listen to a bit of Aerosmith. If I'm wrong, let me know, guys. <laughs> There's a lot of Aerosmith purists that are very angry right now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, 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 the three fans they have left. Yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's kind of hard for me to, like, I can pick this film apart. As soon as I go past any base level, there's so many problems with it. It surprises me when you say that they didn't have a script going into it because it feels like a complete film. I think that has a lot to do with, I mean, uh, McGee is a music video director and this movie is like almost comprised of music video moments. And I think it's a plot through moments uh i don't think the overall story really it's pretty threadbare where it's this like voice recognition technology that has been um you know potentially stolen by a villain played by tim curry but it's actually the tech mastermind who created it that is behind it and it's he's played by sam rockwell and i i did love that they um you know the villain wants to use cell phones as a homing device i'm like boy how innocent we were back in 2000 <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that bit did make me kind of giggle, actually, yeah, how the world has changed. <laughs> but ultimately, like, the plot to me is they just kind of rush through it, and so it's a little convoluted and confusing, but it just barrels on through, through all these montages and music video moments. And a lot of what I would uh, made a note here as sitcom situations, it's like introduce a moment, have something comedic go on, cut the scene after like two minutes or something move on like this movie um it does not waste time it just picks endless moments does what it wants to do with that individual moment and moves on like it doesn't dwell um and we'll talk about the pilot for this uh the original charlie's angels which does a lot of dwelling <laughs> this movie it, does uh, not yeah. <laughs> this movie does no uh you know it does not rest at any point it barrels forward I, I I would, I, I agree with you. I would say the end battle maybe outstays its welcome. 
I agree. That's where I said they could chop a couple minutes out of the back half of this movie. That's where my, yeah. uh, you know, uh, it's the sort of movie that I think you want to stick to that 90 minute runtime because it gets a little bit grating and exhausting after a certain point. And I was feeling it a bit when we got to those final action moments. Uh, but, you know, uh, 98 minutes is tough to complain about. I'm a little concerned that the next one is longer. That is something that fills me with a little bit of apprehension, but uh, I'll have to judge that movie on its own terms when we get to it. But this one I thought was a pretty good, you know, 98 minutes that moved quickly. Hopefully it's just a lot more of like the uh, the Snyder slow-mo stuff. We can only hope. <laughs> hmm. But I, I mean, there's so many things that I like about this film. And I, I, I kind of want to sort of highlight them. I mean, even from the start of the film, you said that they had the script for the opening scene. That's what they had. Yeah. That is a massive Bond montage. It's a, it's a Bond opening if I ever did see one. Well, this also feels like the era where a lot of um, more youthful filmmakers were looking at James Bond being like, this franchise is getting old. You know, the year before you had World Is Not Enough, which maybe feels a little, a little um, dusty compared to what, you know, a lot of young audiences are into. This is like the Britney Spears era, Spice Girls era, you know, all the um, boy bands. Like there's an energy going on in pop culture that I just don't think they were seeing reflected in like the James Bond franchise. And so you have um, this movie very much embracing that sort of pop aesthetic. Triple X is doing that, but also some of the new metal or hip hop aesthetics. Like it feels music videos, at this point in time, so many music video directors were crossing into Hollywood. And it feels like that generation of filmmakers coming in and saying, like, these classic spy movies, like, they're pretty old timey. They're for our parents. We want to make things in our own mold. Charlie's Angels feels like part of that. I mean, Drew Barrymore was 24 when she produced this movie. This is someone who would have their finger on the pulse. 24? Yeah. That actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I totally, I mean, one thing I, I was talking to someone else recently about was just how I felt that there was this period where music videos were fantastic. And now I just feel like they don't matter anymore, which is actually around about this time, 2000, 2001. This is like the era of, I think, I don't remember which music video it was, whether it was like a Britney Spears one or something, but it was like, really expensive it was like 1.5 million for a music video or something like that like they were putting huge money into these videos i think it was the uh, pretty fly for a white guy by the offspring oh was that who it was <laughs> no <laughs> no <laughs> no i it might have that was about five bucks that was it might have been the oops i did it again video or something really possibly yeah hmm. fair enough but i mean with the music videos they were a big part of my childhood. So obviously having this guy who could create that visual and those intense three minutes, and then he's, he knows he can, he has to leave a scene. He knows he has no more energy in the scene. And I really appreciate that as a director. He's not trying to drag anything out. No, I mean, he's a guy who's, you know, driven to design like three or four minute little narratives. Um, and if you actually watch like the corn got the life video, a lot of the energy of that video feels like the same thing as he's doing here. Like that vibe is pretty similar. So what do you think if, if we're just sort of hypothesizing for a second, because there's other stuff I like, but I'm curious as to how this music video director has met with this producer and she's, she's obviously quite young and knows what is going on in the, in the sort of the pulse of the nation um, and how they've created this film. I, it just seems like such a contrast of styles 
but they've managed to create this major motion picture that just works. I, I think Drew must really just have loved Charlie's Angels. Well, she was a huge fan of the 70s show, as I mentioned up front. So, like, I think she knew the kind of the bubblegum James Bond type of movie she wanted to make. Um, and, you know, the fact that she put together the scissor reel, she knew the tone she wanted the movie to be. And I think he was able to deliver that. And she probably saw something in his music video work that translated to the vision of the movie. It's, I, I didn't think about any of this when I was watching it a couple of times. It's so fascinating to think about this whole music video thing, because I really didn't know about this. But you're right. The film is just little interludes. Mm-hmm. The, the, and I will get to one of my criticisms now. I feel like one of the things this film bumps on is it has these subplots for our angels about their love interests. Yeah. I mean, they're completely ancillary. Sure. Um, but are they any different than like, you know, James Bond meeting with Sylvia Trench at the start of a Bond movie? I kind of like that all the male roles, whether they're played by Matt LeBlanc or um, Luke Wilson, they are secondary, just kind of like a glimpse into their personal life. Um, it's a type of subplots that if in a male-driven action hero, you would have had a female character that was basically a nothing role. See, I see that, and I understand that it gives them some sort of character development that the plot's not necessarily giving them. But I also feel like it's, why do we have to talk about their love lives? Yeah, Drew Barrymore actually addressed this. So she said that originally there wasn't um, these sort of side plots, but she said, why can't we have it all? Why can't we have the careers and the happy home lives? Let's do it all. I mean, all my ladies, can you hear me? Fair enough. Yeah. There you have it. Can't argue with that. And I kind of love the casting. When you have these guys played by these other actors, you know, the Matt LeBlancs, the Luke Wilsons, uh, Tom Green in a very uh, kind of brief cameo role. These are not like the um, dominant male actor types you would see in a lot of action movies. Like I like that they feel more like, you know, a little more passive in their representation on screen. It's different and it gives them, you know, it doesn't... Um, take away any of the spotlight then off the three female leads like they are very much the dominant personalities in all of those relationships and that feels pretty ahead of its time at least for that era they are definitely center stage and you i appreciate that um these these ancillary love interests are sort of orbit around the angels and they are all on the back foot every time as well which i quite like there's never a scene where really the angels are surprise particularly they seem to always be in the know mm -hmm. um which i think is i don't want to say progressive i think film should be doing this now and then anyway but it, it was refreshing i imagine at the time yeah i mean it did get definitely um called out a lot for that that it did feel like a kind of a different idea like it felt like a breath of fresh air at a time where you know, uh, a lot of the youth of the <laughs> 90s, 2000s were very appreciative of what this movie was trying to do. Um, I think it's also just really interesting to look at the three leads of this movie. You look at what Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, and Lucy Liu are doing. I have to just say, like watching it last night, I was amazed at how much they were locked in on these characters. Like there's not really much dimension to any of them they're all playing kind of cartoon characters but all three actresses are going for broke like maybe cameron diaz most of all um she's an actress who i think has often gotten some pretty bad roles over the years it feels like a lot of um, directors don't know what to do with her or don't give her very good material um she is going for broke here in a performance that 
it's fearless. Like she is doing things that would make her look really ridiculous if, you know, presented badly in the movie. But um, it is like a full comedic performance and it's pretty big. I tend to agree. I think she's really, she is trying. I, I would say though, I think Drew Barrymore is, is the one for me in this film. It just feels like she's having an absolute blast the entire time. I mean, she, yeah, I mean, she gets to play it as kind of the edgy one, but you have like moments where she's like dancing to Michael Jackson after a fight scene and things like that. Like there's a lot of goofy moments with her. It feels like with Cameron Diaz, though, they just gave her like, well, like Cameron Diaz is in The Mask, right? With Jim Carrey in 1994. Mm -hmm. That's her big um, breakthrough. And it feels like she internalized some of the almost Jim Carrey-like performance um, style. It feels like what she's doing here is big comedy performance stuff. And I was kind of thrown at just how like, it feels like the type of comedic performance that a lot of actresses kind of shy away from especially in this era and she's just going nuts with it see i i saw her performance as kind of like a i don't want to say an imitation because i loved her performance in this film but i had already seen that with um there's something about mary mm, yeah that sort of klutz like not quite sure what's going on um but in a sort of likable way yeah like they play her here as a genius who's a total goofball Hmm. Yeah, I think that's why probably Drew Barrymore worked a bit more for me because I am edgy, of course. Uh, and so I therefore resonated with her. Sure, sure. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, I will point out, actually, one thing is, it's just a little tidbit, but that whole scene with her being uh, tied up at the end, yeah. just before she moonwalks, which you mentioned, didn't that feel just like the scene with Black Widow in... Uh, one of the Captain America films. I think. Uh, no, it's the first Avengers movie. Yeah, I, that went through my head as well. Yeah, I think she did it better. I think I think Drew Barrymore is the true Black Widow for me. Well, Scarlett Johansson didn't moonwalk out of the scene, so ergo that is inferior to what Drew Barrymore did. <laughs> Sorry, Scarlett. Yeah. Drew Barrymore's in. Lucy Liu was the one I had the tougher grasp on. Like she plays the more serious grounded character. And I enjoyed the um, secret identity um, anxiety going on with her and her, you know, boyfriend played by Matt LeBlanc, apparently playing Mm -hmm. Joey from friends. It seems (laughs) as the actor who's like working on set. I I, I think that's what we were meant to do. I mean, his character's name is even called Jason. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the, the Lucy Liu one, like they give her a lot of the really cool action stuff um but she doesn't get like the the broad comedy stuff the other two get and i'm curious to see if they develop that more in the second one she does seem sort of the more reserved one of the three i mean she's also their it specialist she does a little bit of hacking in the film but then again so does cameron diaz mm-hmm. she does the old the old uh, the old zoom and enhance but um i don't know. i i, I quite on i think as a kid i probably liked drew barrymore a bit more i think i also quite liked Lucy Lou. I think I would have agreed with you too that Drew Barrymore was the one that I walked out the first time thinking the star really was. Like I, I was the most drawn to that character, I think. But watching it last night, I just had to admire, you know, we so often give male actors huge amounts of praise for going wacky on screen. You know, whether it's like a Joaquin Phoenix in The Joker or a lot of the Nick Cage performances. When I was watching uh, Cameron Diaz just go for it last night I on the, in this movie, I was like, huh, I feel like we probably owe her a lot more praise than she got at the time. It's See, it's hard to really criticize any of them. I think they all just nailed it. And I think 
that's probably the reason why the film works. Because you're leads, and the film's named after you, you just work. Yeah, and apparently the three of them got along really well and had a lot of fun filming it. So I think that sort of enthusiasm among the three of them really does come across on screen, and you buy them as you know friends on screen. There's got to be a little bit of trust involved, I think, as well. Because mm-hmm. Drew obviously brought Cameron in, I think it's what you said. Yep. And then I imagine together they, or maybe just Drew, brought Lucy in as well. So they probably felt quite protected with Drew because if 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 McGee is this his first film, I imagine he was probably leaning on his peers quite a lot, and Drew being the producer. Um, so both Cameron and Lucy felt kind of protected by that that they wouldn't be given anything stupid to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And also, it's pretty unusual to have a blockbuster fronted by three women as an you know in an action film. That's not really something that happens in this era. And so I would think that the three of them would feel somewhat bonded together and like, let's pull this off. Like, this is important. And I think it's weird when you watch the movie now. And, and you know, in 2000, I think it, it had a lot of strengths you didn't see in a lot of movies of this era. Watching it last night was interesting in that I feel like a lot of what Drew Barrymore is doing is really effective. Like, you can tell it was important to her that these people feel like friends that they each of them have their own little worlds, their own stories. Um, you know, they have uh, friend, you know, like um, character quirks. But at the same time, you know, you're working with McGee, and I feel like a lot of the aesthetics of this movie are where the movie runs into issues. Like, there's a difference between I think what Barrymore wants to do versus how McGee frequently shoots the woman. And this is a guy who works in music videos and music videos of this era. They are all about the male gaze. And this movie very frequently is all about male gaze on film. Yeah, there's several scenes where they will just hang on a shot or zoom in on particular areas, unfortunately, and maybe linger a little bit too long. Yeah, and like crop out like the head. Like uh, that's something that like a lot of male gaze filmmakers will do where they'll focus on a female body part and like literally crop the actress's head out of the, you know, the shot. And this movie does that sort of thing. There's a lot of weird moments like, you know, there's um, Cameron Diaz has a whole kind of like Mission Impossible style scene breaking into a vault and doing gymnastics across this, you know, pressure sensitive floor. But how does the scene start with her like bending over and just like mooning the camera? And that's the sort of decision that like a male director would make, but is far less likely to be seen in a female uh, or under the under the uh, supervision of a female director. And I think it's actually going to be really interesting to compare this movie to the um, Elizabeth Banks, Charlie's Angels movie we'll do a little bit further down the road. Yeah, I agree, actually. I, I, I haven't seen that one, so I'd be interested to see where this film goes. And apparently it's all in the same continuity. Mm-hmm. Also, I've been told. But... It's interesting you talk about this whole the male gaze issue with this film because obviously we've got this director and he seems to be leaning on Drew a lot of the time. I'm surprised she allowed a lot of these shots to go on. Well, is it just it's the style of the time? The fact is, like, there's like no female directors or there's not very many at this point working in film, much less blockbusters like Catherine Bigelow is around at this point. There's a couple. There's Mimi Letter who does like Deep Impact, but there's not very many. And so most movies are filtered through the same sensibility. And so is that just like, well, that's the style of the time. It's maybe that or maybe it's just that whole, you know, some for me, some for you. Like she had to make concessions on those shots to get some of her 
comedy in. But also, like, you look at a lot of the music of this era that I think was influential in probably the making of this, you know, a lot of the Britney stuff, uh, Spice Girls, it's very much about, like, owning sexuality and showing, like, hey, I can, you know, we can put this on screen and it's empowering. And I think that shifted in the years since. So, like, I feel like maybe that's part of it. I really don't know, to be honest with you. In fact, I'm going to put an article that I came across called The Complicated Legacy of Charlie's Angels, which was a Vanity Fair article that is actually really interesting. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes that maybe talks a little bit more about that. But it does feel like something that was progressive maybe in 2000 is now seen as somewhat flawed, but maybe at the time had strengths that now are kind of lost to us. Which happens a lot with films. They seem progressive at the time, but then a couple of years just removed, they're like, what were they doing? Yeah, like you can look at a lot of the cultural appropriation in this movie and be like, what the hell was in the water? Yeah, it does have a certain amount of issue with that. Uh, I mean, there's one scene in particular having Lucy Liu give uh, Tim Curry a massage. Yeah, there's that. And did you notice the close-up of feet, too? It's like, oh, boy, this, yeah. is, this is kind of awkward. And then you have, like, scenes where the other two angels are dressed as, like, gay, in, like similar like geisha outfits or something. And it's like, okay, that's a little weird. But then, later in the movie, there's, like, a belly dance scene, mm-hmm. and Drew Barrymore is in full brown face. Yeah, it's, it's somewhat, sort of hidden in the shadows, but she's definitely in brown face, unfortunately. Yeah, and you even look at that opening where you have LL Cool J show up as a cameo and then, you know, pull off a mask and it's Drew Barrymore underneath and you're like, oh, okay, Um, boy, okay, sure. I mean, that that was the only person of color basically in the film. Yeah, there's not many, are there? Well, other than obviously Lucy Lose the lead, which is very notable, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's very true. But yeah, a a certain uh, lack in that department. Although I do believe that changes in the sequel. Yeah, so I, a lot of the racial stuff in this movie is very, very iffy. <laughs> uh, I was actually kind of shocked watching it last night. It seems like I'm just continually shocked now revisiting some of these movies from the you know 80s, 90s, 2000s. How long some of these um, you know uh, racially insensitive um, approaches to filmmaking were continuing into like years that are fairly recent? It really does shock me. It's bizarre, right? Like you think of when I was watching films at this time in you know, 13, 14, and you would see, I don't know, something made in the 60s and they're in, in blackface or in the 50s. And you would go, oh my God, that's so of its time, even in the year 2000. And now 20 years removed, apparently they were still doing it. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't, we didn't say anything about it. No, no. And uh, I'm sure, you know, if you dig deep, there's probably reviews of this movie at the time that would call that out. But it feels like a lot of what this movie wants to do is just be like silly popcorn without actually thinking about some of the uh, more problematic aspects. Like, it's just like, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Just keep barreling through. Never mind. There's a scene of, um, you know, the three angels in geisha outfits um, scored to the song turning japanese yeah um and and you think about like think about tenet for instance tenet's phrase is don't think about it just feel it now tenet actually wants you to think about it unfortunately Hmm. this film genuinely doesn't want you to think about it (laughs) i think if you actually stop and think about a lot of it it becomes a lot more problematic (laughs) Uh, and this is what happens when you do an hour podcast about this film (laughs) yeah no kidding (laughs) 
I think we should probably move on to some of the other characters because we've got some big names that we've barely spoken about. Mm. Um, we've, we've, we've touched on Bill Murray, obviously playing the role of Bosley, which was from the original TV show. It's kind of like their middleman between the Angels and Charlie. Um, I, I think he's just playing Bill Murray. Yeah, although it lacks that sort of spark of genius you often get from Bill Murray appearances, even in cameos. You know, I think of his appearance in Zombieland, which is like legendary. Um, here, he's fine. I kind of liked when he gives a speech about like weightlifting, as if anyone should be giving a speech about weightlifting, <laughs> you know, who looks like Bill Murray. Like, I kind of love that aspect. But a lot of this movie is just like him locked in a room mugging and just doing silly things. And I'm like, okay, like, that's fine, but he feels pretty inessential to the movie. It it just reminds me of the old uh, the old Men in Black two thing, which is I go back to it too often, I think. But that where they just go, "Hey, Will Smith, vamp." Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's this is just, "Hey, Bill, just make stuff up." Well, if there's no script on this movie, really, or you know, a very loose, um, you know, um, <laughs> assemblage of pages they are following, I can kind of buy that a lot of it was, "Hey, Bill Murray, do something funny." Yeah, uh, and I think he. Does deliver some funny one-liners? Yeah, you get the odd moment, but it's not exactly yeah. going to go on the highlight reel. No, no, not at all. And then we have uh, Sam Rockwell, who starts out as meant to be... He's captured, I believe. Mm-hmm. Allegedly captured. Yeah. Uh, it turns out he is the overarching bad guy. And apart from a very bizarre dancing scene, I didn't really feel Sam Rockwell in this film. I feel like he wasn't really particularly here or present. Okay, that dancing scene is amazing. I think that dancing scene is one of the greatest moments in the film in uh, film history. <laughs> it has this like has this horrible like circular camera thing. That I hate when they do that in films. Oh uh, yeah, uh, and then it just pans around to him like he's he's a good guy at the beginning of the scene, and then it pans around Drew Barrymore, and then he's instantly got like sunglasses on, smoking a cigarette, and dancing to like some seventies song. Like I gotcha, I gotcha. And that was so funny. But then, I don't know, the rest of it just didn't do anything for me. I don't know. I really like Sam Rockwell in this. I, I kind of agree. He's not the most fun early on. He's just kind of playing, you know, the nebbishy kind of nerdy dude. Mm. But once he, like, suddenly, like, breaks out in the supervillain dancing and camping it up, I think he's so much fun. And uh, he has that scene, yeah, in the castle at the end. Um, I don't know what song is playing. It's sort of like a techno song. And he's just, like, dancing while he's, like, pl- typing on a computer. And I'm like, this is pure Rockwell. <laughs> I want to get a gif of the uh, of when he turns on Drew Barrymore and that first bit with him dancing in the vest <laughs> with the sunglasses on. That that I feel like that's got really good gif potential. But uh, yeah, I, I I to me it didn't really do much for me. I, I was more focused on what the angels were doing. That was more interesting. These movies often depend on the strength of their villain, and I think Sam Rockwell's pretty memorable. And we've talked about some ones like in Remo Williams fairly recently, who are just like black holes of charisma. Uh, to me, Sam Rockwell is just like, uh, he is just like a star ready to burst into flame in this movie. It's, it's really interesting because I actually can't remember the bad guy in Remo Williams. Who could? Who could? Uh, well, okay, he didn't work for me, but he clearly worked for you. Obviously, his, his henchwoman for the film is uh, Vivian Wood, played by Kelly Lynch. And, you know, she gets her little, you know, kung fu scene at the end as well. Yeah, I liked seeing the fight scene there with her at the end. That was pretty cool to see. Um, not the personality like of some like this is a movie where everyone's personality is like turned up to a hundred, except for like her character is played as more of a grounded character. 
Uh, and so she does her job. She's the villain, but she does take kind of the, you know, the passenger seat to um, Sam Rockwell's more campy character at a certain point. But I thought she was pretty solid and I believed her in the fight scenes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, she must have done some training too. And I mean, until her, I think, demise at the end. Well, question mark. Question mark. There we are. Um, but she's not really the heavy of the film. The heavy is played by one Crispin Glover, who you might remember from Back to the Future. Who is great. And apparently his character actually had dialogue in the uh, original you know, scripted pages. And he was like, take it out. I don't want to do that. And so he wanted to play this as an entirely silent character. And he is really weird. Like, if you want weird, hire Crispin Glover and he will deliver. I think he's pretty great in this movie. He pulls off some of the really ridiculous martial arts sequences really well. This weird stuff with him, like, smelling hair is uh, very effective in establishing what a creep this guy is. He is the type of, I think, Bond henchman character you see a lot of movies want to try to recreate, but he really does pull it off. And it's notable that his father, Bruce Glover, was um, one of the villains, uh, one of the henchmen, um, Mr... Boy, was it Mr. Wint or Mr. Kid? I don't remember. I think it's Mr. Wint in um, Diamonds Are Forever. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. I He was one of the... Um, his his character of Creepy Thin Man was one of the things I remember distinctly from watching it as a, as a kid. Oh, yeah. I just thought he was... That, that whole thing was super cool. Even though he was a bad guy, I thought he was cool. I also had his hair at the time. <laughs> yes! <laughs> um there's a reason they brought him back in the sequel yeah absolutely and i i will tell you a funny story so i have once had uh an ex give me a lock of their hair oh wow that's so that actually is a thing apparently people enjoy it okay well there you have it uh i wasn't sniffing it every night though i i I, that was not happening okay well i'll sleep better knowing that Luckily, I'm bald now, so you can't get mine, Cam. Yeah, no kidding. There goes my master plan for when I visit the UK. (laughs) I mean, there is some hair, but I don't think you want to carry that around with you. Right, right. (laughs) Um, Barring that, Tim Curry, of course. Yeah, I mean, Tim Curry is totally playing Tim Curry in this movie, and he's pretty fun. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really strange, though, to see Melissa McCarthy pop up in a very small role as Doris at the um, tech uh, firm run by um, Tim Curry's character. That was kind of crazy. Obviously, she has a bit of a future in spy films. But where was she around the time? Because I know Gilmore Girls, I don't know if that was on the air at this point. Or... Oh, She was boy. in that. Yeah, but... that's around this era. But uh, Melissa McCarthy is definitely not a star at this point. She was one of those ones I didn't expect to see. And I was like, oh, that's Melissa McCarthy. And then she's gone again. But uh, she did get a funny moment. Yeah. She did. And this movie's uh, pretty notable for having those kind of like blink and you'll miss it kind of like moments where you have like a Melissa McCarthy appearance. You have a lot of um, like film moments that are paying tribute to classic films. You had like the house from E.T. shows up at a certain point where two kids are in the house and Drew Barrymore comes up to the sliding glass window. They have like Reese's Pieces in a bowl in the shot. Um, You also have the house from E.T. It is. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, like there's all these like that. yeah, there's all these weird moments. Like they also have uh, there's a scene where um, Cameron Diaz does like a hair flip in front of Luke Wilson, and then the camera does the Jaws shot of the zooming into Luke Wilson as the background pulls away. 
Um, as I referenced earlier, you have Bill Murray doing the great escape scene where he's throwing the ball against the wall. Um, you have a matrix bullet at one point with like the, um, the, the rippling effect coming off the bullet flying through the air. This movie has a lot of references to popular movies. And also LL Cool J doing the uh, Mission Impossible face removal. Yeah, yeah. And also that whole vault scene felt very Mission Impossible as well. Uh, I, I always remember that scene being riffed on in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, of all films. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, it ends a bit differently, but... Uh... There's also a um, a uh, reference to Harry Potter, where Drew Barrymore is dressed like Harry Potter in a moment, and this was before the movies had come out. She was just a big fan of the books, apparently. Huh. You're picking up a lot more things than I did, mate. It's a very blink-and-you'll-miss-it kind of uh, cameo with that Harry Potter thing, for sure. What, seeing as we're talking around about the same time period in the film, what did you think about the whole like fake naked Drew Barrymore thing or faked as I wrote it down as? Do you mean when she's hanging from the house thing? Well, they did like the drop and it's like, I mean, and she's clearly not, she's wearing like a suit or whatever, but I yeah. just felt like that was a really weird choice for the film. That's not the way I would have shot it because yeah, it's one of the um the tan bodysuits. You see them all the time. Um Ursula Andress has one as well in Doctor No when they're going through the um uh the disinfectant uh shower kind of area of Doctor No's lair. Mm -hmm. Um pretty common, but yeah, it was a weird choice to actually shoot that from above where it's like very obvious. Um I would have probably obscured it a little more and and played it more for comedy, I think in that moment. Yeah, uh, it did give me one of the greatest scenes of all time uh, with uh, Drew Barrymore coming up on a bicycle in a Stone Cold Steve Austin t-shirt. Oh, yeah, yeah, good call. I felt like I was back in 2000 by that point because I, I was pretty much wearing those exact clothes. Mm-hmm, right. Um, okay, well, is there any sort of things you didn't like about the plot that we haven't touched on yet? Um, I mean, the plot is just such a... Like, when we're talking on this podcast about spy plots... This was not the most involving one. It is just a clothesline for a lot of goofy situations. Like, how does Cameron Diaz dancing at Soul Train um, tie into the spy plot? It doesn't. It's just like, let's just throw a wacky moment in there. And, uh, you know, the, the spy plot stuff is very disposable. Yeah, I, it's one thing I like to try and do when we're dealing with these maybe spy adjacent films. It, not justify its choice, but maybe point out some of the spy stuff. Now there are people going undercover mm -hmm. in this film. They are a private detective agency, basically. Are they? That's what I was so baffled by because yes, that is the entire concept of the TV show, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but they don't really seem to do detective jobs. It seems like they're more like super spies. Yeah. I mean, they're more like superheroes by the film. But I see, I got the idea that they were more like detectives because they are figuring out clues. They do end up infiltrating Tim Curry's business, which is where the whole uh, Lucy Liu as a dominatrix scene comes from. Um, but yeah, I, I think, it, see, I see him as private detectives with a bit of spy work. That's where I come down on it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I felt like they really blurred the line because... That's something the show doesn't do. I think the show really establishes that they're detectives that go undercover. Whereas like this movie, just off the opening, where they're like diving out of planes and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, this is um, definitely not detective work. I, I feel like that whole thing in the beginning, though, was there to make you go like, this ain't your daddy's Charlie's Angels. Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 That's got to be what that's there. Well, I, I think we're kind of at the point 
before we wrap up the film. Do you want to talk about the TV show? Yeah, let's go for it, Scott. I'm first of all curious. <laughs> oh, sorry, buddy. Sorry, you want to talk? Yeah. Uh, okay, go, go. go. Had yeah. you ever watched the Charlie's Angels show? Like, does it have any sort of reputation over in the UK? Uh, no, I, I imagine it was a thing here in the UK because this film was pushed really heavily. So there must have been some sort of knowledge base for Charlie's Angels. But it's not something that gets you know replayed on daytime TV here. It doesn't exist here. Yeah, like it's fairly iconic in North America. The music, the the pose of the three women doing like the guns, you know, holding them up. Like we've all seen that silhouette shot. But it was definitely not something that I was exposed to at all. Um but it is a thing. But Scott, I'm curious, how did you find watching the, I think you kind of gave it away, but watching the pilot for the Charlie's Angels TV show from 1976? Hot dog, that was rough. Uh-huh. That was a, I mean, if that was the pilot that they were selling to TV channels to get it picked up, I have no idea how this film got made. It's such a departure from each other. They're, they're so different, diametrically different. Yeah, because when you watch the Man from Uncle pilot, I think you can see that it's a fairly straight line from that to the movie. They've definitely taken some liberties, and the Ilya character wasn't set up very well in the pilot. That's something that came later as the show developed. But in terms of energy and vibe, I think they go pretty hand in hand versus the Charlie's Angels pilot. It's very slow. <laughs> and we really are just set up the concept. I the, You know, I don't think that like, even the three leads have very strong characteristics at all. Maybe that comes with the, you know, ensuing episodes, but off the bat, I was like, okay, I understand the roles they're playing, but I don't understand what really differentiates them as characters. So I found that kind of weird. And it's really just about a, um, a man's ex-wife is trying to claim his um, money and estate with her, um, you know, new boyfriend after they have murdered him. And so the angels are brought in to expose this woman and her boyfriend and uh, return the estate to the daughter who um, is the rightful heir to the property. And that's all well and good as a case to investigate. It has some twists and turns, but this is like 75 minutes of characters like wandering around a house. <laughs> they, they really just stretch it out. It, it could have been a 15 minute story in the middle of some interesting scenes at the beginning and the back end. Because the, the interesting and, and sort of juicy stuff is whenever they're talking to Charlie or talking to Bosley or the other character I can't remember the name of. Oh, are you talking about, um, yeah, Scott Woodville, played by David Ogden Stiers, who was actually the conductor in The Man With One Red Shoe. Um, that character was actually cut after the pilot because they decided it didn't make sense to have these two male liaisons characters. So they just cut it down to Bosley. That makes sense. Um but that, that stuff's all quite energetic. But as soon as they got to actually doing the quote-unquote investigation work, the whole show just grinds to a halt. And it's got people like Diane Muldor. You, people will know we're big Star Trek fans as well. And she was in the second season of The Next Generation as main cast. And it also has uh, Spy Hard's alumni, Tommy Lee Jones. Mm -hmm, yeah. Uh, as, as a love interest. And But there's just no energy to it. Oh, there was none. And... I could appreciate that, like, I thought, like, Kate Jackson was actually, she stood out the most to me, having the early scenes where she's going in and selling this whole ruse of, you know, she's trying to um, present herself as this long-lost daughter. 
to these uh, to this conniving couple. And I thought she was pretty effective. And it, the movie had a shot where they were going to poison her with milk. And that shot where they're carrying the milk up the stairs is actually a reference to the Hitchcock movie Suspicion. That actually jumped out to me. I was the most excited about that of anything in this pilot. <laughs> when they're trying to do something that isn't theirs. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, like when they're carrying the milk and it's doing the close-up of the milk, I'm like, oh my god, this is the exact shot from Suspicion. That's really cool. But by the end, when we were wandering around the Louisiana swamps, I just was like, holy smokes, like this is a very drawn-out show. And that is sort of, a, I find to be, a 70s TV thing. I tend to respond better, I think, to 60s TV, which the man from Uncle had a really good pace. Like, it moved, right? Uh, yeah, it was quite enjoyable your lead was very engaging and it was fun i can't say that about any of the things maybe the leads were engaging that the angels were fine yeah but i find like a lot of 70s tv has much more of that laid back hangout vibe and if you're enjoying the characters that's all well and good but there's not a lot of actual character work going on in the show and so it's just like really leisurely paced. Well, I, I I can't speak for the rest of the show, but this one felt very much like a murder mystery whodunit kind of thing because they are all locked in this house, more or less. They mm -hmm. do pop out, but they're, they're mostly inhabiting this house. Right. And so it's it's people you don't particularly know or care about talking to other people you don't know and don't care about. And and, and so you don't care. You think of a show... Uh, so you think of a film like um, Knives Out, uh, the Rianne Johnson film recently was some uh, what a fantastic cast, and you care about all of the main characters, mm -hmm. and so you're you're actually invested to find out in the end who did it, right? Whereas this, I I didn't care. Yeah, and I was actually really interested. I talked to my friend Parv um, about this because she grew up watching um, Charlie's Angels a lot, and I said like I watched the pilot, and I was kind of struck at how different it was from the movie version. And she said that actually the later episodes of the show got much more into the what you see in the movie, more of this like scantily clad kind of cheesecake style stuff. But that's not really there in the pilot. Uh, the pilot is played much more self-serious. That was my suspicion. I, I had read like a review of this film we're talking about, but where they referenced the TV show mm -hmm. and just said that the, like, the show was basically scantily clad women getting out of situations. Right like MacGyvering their way out, which this movie feels more like. Mm -hmm. um, so I can I can see that line, but I just think maybe the pilot was an unfortunate uh, a point in the show's development where they hadn't found their, their tone. Sure, yeah, or at least found what people would enjoy the most about the show, I guess. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not like lightly comedic either. Like it does really just kind of drag. So it's the type of thing like when I was done, I was like, well, this is not a journey I'm going to continue. I don't have any plans to watch more Charlie's Angels episodes, but Man From U.N.C.L.E. really did grab me. Yeah, I, I won't be picking up that box set, unfortunately. No, no. Um, okay, Cam, did you have any sort of final thoughts or comments about Charlie's Angels? I thought it was kind of funny when they had the moment on the plane at the start where the TJ Hooker movie was being advertised. And then they joke about TV shows being turned into movies. That kind of made me smile. It did make me smile. It turns out that was in the trailer. Oh, okay. So they, that was at the beginning of one of the trailers I watched for the film. And so I guess they use that as kind of like a hook the whole way through. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess it was a fun joke. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on too was the wire foo, which I found less grating than I expected. Like I thought it would be really awkward looking. 
But I thought most of it was done well. Like the fight in the alley with Crispin Glover was pretty strong. That fight at the castle at the end, though, is I think the most glaring example of it where it does feel pretty... Um, it just kind of lacks all impact. It feels like actresses being swung through the air on cables much more than it should. Yeah, I think the the Drew Barrymore fight as she's in the chair and then she's bound um, feels very weird. That sort of uncanny valley feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know it's not physically possible for her to get her leg that way without a wire. And she's like, she's jumping and swinging across the ceiling like she's uh, Mutt from uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> uh, but like, she's making leaps that you know she's just being pulled towards. She's she's barely even like grabbing stuff. Yeah. And you also see like, there's one fight where like Cameron Diaz is like flying through the air and she's like kicking her legs multiple times through the air. And you're like, this feels strange. <laughs> to be fair, Cam, neither of us are martial arts experts. That's true. That is true. Maybe we just haven't unlocked that power. Yeah, I mean, we didn't train for like months on end, eight hour days. So maybe that is all achievable and we're just too lazy to achieve it. We certainly are lazy. Mm. Okay, I have two questions for you, Cam. Okay. Firstly, from like your your memory of it watching it as a kid and then coming up to now, do you remember the film being this sort of sexual? Yeah, yeah. That you were happy with it all? Like, it, it didn't surprise you? No, it didn't surprise me at all revisiting it last night, no. I, I honestly don't know whether 13, 14-year-old me just wasn't paying attention particularly at the time. Because I was completely bowled over with some of the choices. Well, I will say, like, a lot of the choices would never be made in a movie nowadays. It feels very much of that era. But it didn't shock me at all that that's what they were doing in the year 2000. I mean, there's a scene where they're at like a, a driveway, like a, a Formula One racetrack or something like that. Mm, and you've yeah. got you know, Drew Barrymore's character like licking the steering wheel of the guy and, and the guy's basically climaxing in the seat next to her. Yeah. And you're just like, what? This was made for kids? Well, it does a lot of that where it's kind of like the gag is the angels do something hypersexualized and guys are just like bah, bah, bah. like they just kind of do you know it's the classic you know dudes are dumb kind of thing which we've tackled in other movies um mm-hmm. and it does a lot of that for its comedy and uh, it didn't shock me but it is the the again the way that mcgee is shooting the actresses in this movie is something that uh i just don't think a studio would do now no I, I'm, I'm glad for that it's interesting you talk about the whole uh men are idiots thing because that's that's what i wrote in that's what I noted down was uh, Matahari. Yeah, she was she was a femme fatale, and she used her womanly prowess to to win men over. But it's nowhere near the sexual, and it doesn't need to be. Yeah, we're going to be looking at some more serious examples of that sort of trope as well in movies like uh, Red Sparrow with Jennifer Lawrence at some point in the future. Um, there's quite a number of them, but um, this one. <sighs> It is like going for that that sort of cheesecakey kind of silliness that you saw so much in that era. I mean, it is there in like, you know, the Britney Spears music videos or the, the Spice Girls music videos. It just feels like it's a little more amped up here, but it also feels very recognizable to me from that era. Yeah, it is of its time. There were certainly no sacred candles in Charlie's Angels. Maybe it's all just part of getting old, though, Scott. 
like you're supposed to be outraged at the entertainment aimed at youth at a certain point. And maybe we've hit that uh, that age limit where it's suddenly like all this youth culture stuff is terrifying to us. Why do you need to remind me of my age again, Cam? <laughs> Time is the fire in which we burn. Oh, unfortunately, it's like, well, I, I have one last question for you before we get to the end. Mm. And, you know, you look at things like sex in the city. Okay. And people are always talking about like, which person sex in the city are you? Are you a Samantha? I don't know any more names, but you know, you get the idea. So my question to you, Cam, is which angel are you? Oh my God. Okay. Um, maybe we have should choose for each other. Like which one do you think is oh. me and I'll choose for you? Maybe that's more the, uh, the appropriate choice. Okay. Well, are you still thinking about your answer, Cam? I kind of am. Um, okay. I, I, I can talk about mine first and then, and then okay. you can say yours. Yeah, go for yeah. it. For you, for those who don't know, Cam is the guy who puts these episodes together. I talk a lot of nonsense and he makes me sound moderately good. Hmm. Okay. Um, so he's a bit of a genius with that, but he's also quite a cool, calm and collected guy. I've never seen Cam get particularly irate <laughs> or excited or animated or feel anything really. I'm just numb. <laughs> oh yeah. He's dead inside. Exactly. Except for that one time he shook a hobo's hand, but we'll, we'll talk about that another time. Um, <laughs> So for me, I think I'm going to go with Lucy Liu in her dominatrix character. Oh my God. Okay. That, that is you or just Lucy Liu's character of Alex. Sure. Okay. At its core. I think that, I think that's you. I think that's like cool, calm and collected, cool, calm and collected. Oh, wow. I do have a lot of uh, secret identity anxiety. So that, that does make sense. Um, Okay. So, okay. So that takes her off the board then. I think for you, hmm, God, this is really tough. <laughs> Definitely not Cameron Diaz. So I guess by default, I would have to say the Drew Barrymore one. Uh, yes. I think with like, you know, your um, uh, history of enjoying like, um, uh, like sort of a edgier music, you had your goth period and what have you. I think that ties more into the Drew Barrymore Angel. Plus, uh, you're a big uh, wrestling fan for a long time. I think this character would be too. She's wearing a stone cold shirt. So I think the the Drew Barrymore character is definitely the one you are. Um, Dylan, I believe. Yeah, Dylan. I, I think I'm moonwalking out of this one as the best. <laughs> fair Although fair I, enough. I, at, least you, at least you have Matt LeBlanc. I, I have Tom Green. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the chat is never enough no no and poor tom green was diagnosed with testicular cancer while shooting this movie so oh jeez, uh, yeah he had, a, he had a rough go with this production he was doing treatment during the shoot so pretty pretty uh, tough story wasn't he married to drew barrymore uh i don't remember if they were married or if they were just together for a handful of years but yeah they were a couple for a while hmm. i actually have no complaints about him in this film he's a bizarre character but then tom green is known for that and he's best in small doses and you only get a couple minutes of him here. And that's just perfect. I say the same thing about you, Cam. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think it's question time. Now I think this could be interesting. Cam is Charlie's angels making the knock list. Uh, it's a no for me. Um, 
like I thought this was a movie that was energetic. It had some fun, but I just don't think it's I don't think it's a particularly great spy movie. Like I can say the leads are fun. Um, the movie has energy, but as I said, like it kind of wears out its welcome. Um, the plot is not much there. And there's a lot of material that is kind of cringe-inducing now. Uh, so for me, it's kind of like, I would recommend people watch it. I think it actually has some value, but it's not a movie that I would say belongs, you know, on the all-timer list. I am in two minds mm-hmm. about this film. I really, really enjoy it. I think it's a really fun film to watch. I, if there's a group of people that defend this film, stick me in that group. There are dozens of us. um i think it's really fun i think it doesn't take itself too seriously and i really appreciate that in a in a genre field of really serious films that take deep analysis and and re-watching especially after talking about tenet recently and having to re-watch that so many times it's so nice to just pick up a film and be like yeah this is fun um but and so on like a, a cinematic level as a film i would recommend people go back and watch this Again, I think it really is worth revisiting. Yeah, I mean, we talked about, you know, with Men in Black, like that's a movie that knows what it is, gets the concept across, but that doesn't mean when we, you know, don't put something on the knock list, it doesn't mean we don't like the movie. It just means that it doesn't belong in the pantheon of the all-time greats. I, I would recommend people watch this movie. I just, you know, like a Men in Black, it gets its concept across, but it's not an all-timer movie for me. Uh, uh, no, I, I will correct you, Cam. Sometimes it means it is a bad movie too. Well, that too. I mean, Remo Williams did not make the list, and it was a bad movie. So yeah, <laughs> there was there was no discussion with Remo Williams. Yeah, but um, yeah, I think you're right though. As a spy film, there is a spy thread, and it's stronger than some other films we've tackled so far. But I feel like it's just not very strong. Um, so for me, it's a no. Yeah, but. You know what? We also said no to um, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., which was a fun movie as well. Like, I think you could do a lot worse than doing an evening watching movies like Man from U.N.C.L.E., Charlie's Angels, you know, Men in Black, like some of these more um, light, fun ones. And, you know, I don't know that Charlie's Angels had like the cultural impact that, say, like an Our Man Flint had. Um, Mm. But it is a noteworthy movie with some value behind it. And I think it... um, open the door to a lot of better movies and and it's nice to see a female-led and female-driven film uh work and and it's successful and it gets a sequel and everything is just great about it mm-hmm. like i i like that i want to see more of that please um but yeah I, I just don't know if it holds up against north by northwest sure I am genuinely excited, though, and, you know, some franchises, we know it's diminishing returns. Like, I can't say when we finished Men in Black that I thought, boy, I can't wait to see where Men in Black 2 or 3 go. Um, Whereas I really am genuinely curious to see how this franchise evolves, just going from, you know, this movie into the McGee-directed second one, and then see how Elizabeth Banks takes this material and reformats it. Because when I saw the um you know the elizabeth banks film you know a year or so ago i had very little memories of this movie other than specific scenes but now actually examining the style of this movie i'm really excited to see how it's changed up in the um you know in the reboot 
and I, as usual, haven't seen it. So that will be fun. Mm -hmm. Um, I, and I, I, it does, this does remind me a lot in a lot of ways of the man from uncle. Yeah. Like I stylistically really enjoyed the film. I think it did a lot of things, right. It was fun. It was punchy. Uh, it just sort of fell flat in a couple of key areas to make the knock list, but it gets a, a recommendation from me nonetheless to watch it. I think this, I think if you've just finished listening to this, well done for making it all the way through. I think you should treat yourself with Charlie's Angels 2000. Listen to that soundtrack. It's great. Great acting. Um, it's just a fun popcorn film. And that's exactly what it is. Although, that said, I can see a lot of people hating it. So it's it's an acquired taste, I would also say quite strongly. <laughs> um, well, if you don't like it, at me and tell me why. Mm. Um, well, there you have it, folks. Charlie's Angels is not making the knock list. And that's kicking your ass. <laughs> well, Cam, before we talk about what we're doing next week, uh, I want to pivot from three angels to three spooked girls and a quick message from them. Hey there, I'm Tara. And I'm Jessica. And together we co-host the podcast, Three Spooked Girls. If you love the paranormal or murder... Join us on Mondays for full-length episodes where we discuss our favorite paranormal stories and true crime cases. And join us again on Thursdays for our mini-sodes called Stabby Snippets, where we tell you all about true crimes happening in the news. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, wherever the hell else you listen to your pods at. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by using the handle at 3 Girls. Come and hang out with us and get your spooky on while we scare the hell out of you. There you go. Three spooked girls available on all major podcast apps. Check them out. I love paranormal stuff, and I'm going to check out this podcast for sure. Looking forward to it. Well, Cam, what do we have lined up for next week? Well, we are going into the vaults, the Disney vaults, no less, to talk about a, I think, um, maybe not quite so remembered Disney gem, perhaps, um, from 1975 called One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing, starring Peter Ustinov, who was a uh, Disney player of the era, very popular in uh, various productions. So I'm uh, very curious to see what this movie is because I know next to nothing about it. Yeah, I this is actually a Scott pick, so apologies ahead of time if it's not very good. I just was looking at like lesser-known spy films, and then I saw Dinosaur in the title. Oh, okay, yeah. And I thought... That's the one for me. I mean, Condor Man was a lot of fun, so we'll see how one of our dinosaurs is missing turns out. Hopefully we uh, hopefully we find it. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out one of our dinosaurs is missing and join us next week. Uh, you can, of course, find updates on the knock list on letterbox.com forward slash spyhards. And for social media, don't forget to follow us discreetly at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners let's see if i can win the teddy bear